Jonathan. Jonathan Hui, if you could come forward, please. Make him feel welcome as we go into our next sermon. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. All right, we are running a little behind time, so I am going to make the introduction short. Uh, My name is Jonathan, as Joe correctly said. We are doing a series called Jesus Said What? If you've been here in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some of the words of Jesus and some of those words that really challenge us. And so today, today we're going to look at some of Jesus' words. Jesus said what about faith? Uh, what I'm going to do is actually invite another Jonathan to come and read for us. Uh, I didn't actually warn him that he was going to be reading, so apologize for his lack of a college shirt. But uh, John, if you come up and uh, read for us, he's going to be reading Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. So if you'd like to follow along, Mark chapter 9, 14 to 29. Good morning, church. Oh, that is small. Good morning, Joe. All right, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. Righto. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When a spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. Thanks, Jono. We are actually going to read another Bible passage. Uh, It is actually the same passage, but from Matthew's point of view in Matthew's Gospel. And so I'm going to share the Bible reading and invite Cassandra to come and read that for us. It's uh, Matthew 17, 14 to 15. Matthew 17, verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. 
Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Hello? All right, sorry. Do I need to repeat all that? Oh. All right, so I got up in the middle of the night. My dad also uh, having to get up in the middle of the night. And he's having to go and check for me in my bed. And, of course, Dad found my bed empty. Um, you know, I just wasn't there. And, and, obviously, I wasn't in the room. But, you know, you can imagine what my dad must have felt. So, he, you know, obviously checked under the bed, checked in the wardrobe, checked... And he couldn't find me. He probably checked, went to the bathroom, the toilet, tried to look for me, and I assume he was just freaking out. He probably almost had a heart attack. And now I'm a pretty, I was pretty small at the time, and so in the front living room, you know, there's kind of large sofas, and, and it was a nighttime, so unless you're really looking for me, you're not going to find me. And so Dad, you know, starts looking around, and, and eventually, this is all I really remember, eventually I, my dad found me, and I remember him carrying me and taking me back to bed. Uh, now, for some of you parents, uh, you probably had similar incidents, maybe not quite the same, but maybe an incident where you're so worried just for a small incident uh, about your child or about your son. I know my dad definitely was that day. Today in this story, we're going to look at another father who also had a very troubled child. Uh, he's someone who experienced something much worse than just a child who got up in the middle of the night and decided to sit randomly in the living room. Uh, I want you to just think for a moment what it must have been like for this father. For this father whose child was possessed by a demon. Now for many of us today, that's very hard to even imagine what that could be like. Uh, but in Jesus' time, that was not that uncommon an occurrence. Uh, what we learn first is that this boy could not speak. The demon wouldn't let him speak. The Bible tells us that it robbed him of speech. When Jesus addresses the demon, he says, you mute, mute and deaf spirit, meaning that the boy could neither talk nor hear. He couldn't respond to his parents, and he probably never was able to show them any sign of affection or love either. Uh, my little brother, Kenny, when he was about one years old, 
we thought that he might actually be deaf. Uh, so what we did one day is, you know, as he was just sitting there, we would come up behind him and just clap really loudly behind him. Uh, and he wouldn't flinch. He wouldn't kind of respond. And, uh, you know, we, my parents were understandably pretty worried. Uh, so my mum took him to get a sound test. Um, she had to, s- to hold him um, in a, a soundproof room. And then they would play this kind of this noise over the microphone. It's really now really loud noise. And you can imagine her relief when my brother turned his head as the sound was played over the loudspeakers. Uh, but the boy in this story isn't quite as fortunate. From childhood, he couldn't speak and he couldn't hear anything. His parents didn't know the joy of hearing his voice, of, of speaking or saying their, their names or mum or dad, calling them mum or dad. They couldn't verbally communicate with him. They couldn't tell him how much they loved him or, or read him bedtime stories. And that wasn't even the least of what this demon would do. On top of that, we learned that the spirit would seize him would throw him to the ground, would cause him to violently gnash his teeth together and to foam at the mouth. Uh, I've never witnessed someone in person anyway who has experienced a seizure or a fit, but I can imagine it's a very disconcerting thing to see. But even that would not compare to something like what this father would have to witness time and time again. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that would be to see as a parent over and over again? What would that do to your soul? In this story alone, we actually learn that the demon causes the boy to seize up twice. First at seeing Jesus, and secondly, before he leaves uh, the boy, he convulses violently. You can imagine the roller coaster of emotions that this parent might go through. The anger at someone or something hurting your child like that. But also, what about the sorrow and grief that he would experience, not knowing how much of your child was even still there, locked away in his own body? the feeling of helplessness as you watched your child suffer. And as though that were not enough heartache to deal with, the father tells Jesus that whenever the boy is near fire or water, the demon would try to hurl him into the fire or drown him in the water. Imagine for the first time seeing your son leap into flames. Imagine the scars that they both would have accumulated over the years, the fathers from having to attempt to rescue the boy time and time again. What about any time that they were near water, the father desperately jumping in after the boy, kicking and screaming, attempting to fish him out? The boy was mute, and so he couldn't even cry out for help when it happened. Watching your own child forced to try and kill himself, powerless to the dark forces that be. That's the picture that Mark paints for us. That's the detail that he gives us of this encounter of this poor father. What about all the precautions that this parent would have had to take The guilt, perhaps the shame he would have felt in having to restrain his son, perhaps like an animal, to prevent him from hurting himself, just to protect him. Think about how exhausting that must have been, how worn out this father would have been emotionally, physically, mentally, how he endured for all those years this demon's cruel torment of his son. All he really wanted was for his son to be normal, to live a normal life. We're not told, but we can speculate that this father probably went to many great lengths to try and get his son to be healed. You can bet that he's tried anything and everything. You can bet that he spent all his energy, his time, and his money trying to find a cure for the boy. Perhaps he's gone to spiritists or mediums. He's tried medicines from doctors and exorcisms from priests. 
He's offered sacrifices at every temple. This is the extent the love of a father can have for his son. And finally, in this passage, we find out that he has found Jesus' disciples. This father has heard how they've been going around performing miracles. We're told back in Matthew 10, chapter 1, that Jesus called the 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So this father, he's come to Jesus, hope against all hope, that his disciples might be able to do something for his son. And you can imagine his disappointment when even Jesus' disciples can do nothing for this boy. They've been given authority over the demons to heal all sicknesses, but for his child they cannot help. And then Jesus comes. At the very sight of Jesus, the boy begins to convulse and gnash his teeth, foam at the mouth yet again. And we can sympathize with this father, can't we? We can understand his trepidation in asking for Jesus' help. And so he asks cautiously in verse 22, he says, But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. From a human perspective, we can forgive this father for his skepticism, can't we? We can forgive him for thinking that maybe Jesus can't actually do something. This father does not want to get his hopes up yet again, only to be dashed. He is much too familiar with disappointment to be foolish enough to get his hopes up, only to be crushed again. Was it really that bad that this man could not bring himself to believe that Jesus could perform the impossible? I think it would be only, it's only natural for us to expect Jesus to respond tenderly to this traumatized father. Surely someone who's been through this kind of hardship and this kind of disappointment deserves some, some pity. Surely God, the father, the gracious father, who can, who can fully identify with this man because he knows his own son's suffering, surely God the Father would graciously show him mercy to this man's plight, would he not? But Jesus doesn't reply as we might expect. Don't get me wrong, Jesus does show this man mercy and compassion, but first he wants to deal with his lack of faith. And so Jesus, instead of just giving this man comforting words or just doing what he wants, he actually admonishes him. He says in verse 23, If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Jesus won't have even a bar of it. If you can, are you really going to question my power, says Jesus. What we're about to see is that Jesus wants to heal in more ways than one in this story. Not only is he going to free this boy from his torment, but he's also going to restore this man's faith. He's going to leave an indelible mark on this man's life and restore his broken spirit. And he's going to teach him a valuable lesson on what it means to believe and to trust in Jesus. When it comes to Jesus... There is no questioning whether he is able or not, because Jesus can do anything. You see, it is okay to have our doubts about things like modern medicine or about doctors knowing what's best for us or blood test results or 
perhaps doubts the reliability of other people's opinions. That's okay. But it's not okay to doubt that Jesus can help us in any situation we find ourselves in. Scripture teaches us very plainly that God can do anything. Mark 10.27 says this, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Job 42.2 says this, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah 32.17, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Luke 1.37 in the KJV says, For with God nothing shall be impossible. 1 John 4.4, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You see, God can do the impossible, whether it be threading a camel for the eye of a needle or casting out the most stubborn of demons. There's nobody and no thing that can thwart his plans. There's nobody, there's no thing beyond the reach of his outstretched arm. He created the world and he is greater than anything in it. He can do an immeasurably greater amount, more than our minds can even fathom. Jesus can turn any situation around. Jesus can and is able to help you in every circumstance. There was no sickness that he couldn't heal. There was no storm that he could not calm. There was no demon he couldn't cast out. And there was no question that he could not answer. Are you facing a situation today that is seemingly impossible? Are you in some circumstance that you just don't understand how you're going to get out of it? Have you been praying time and time again, but seeing failed results? Perhaps you've given up. Perhaps you don't even really believe that God hears your prayers or wants to work for you in your situation. Then know this, everything is possible for one who believes. Mark 9.23 in the ESV says it like this, all things are possible for one who believes. I want to give us just a few moments right now, a little bit different, to think about a situation that you're facing that just seems impossible, a situation that requires God's intervention. For this father in this story, he desperately needed God to intervene in his son's life. He was at the end of his rope, but God was able to turn his situation 180 degrees around. What I want us to do is just to think about that situation and to speak truth into it. I want you to commit it to God and say, God, all things are possible with you because you can do anything. I'm going to give us just a couple of moments to do that right now.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that nothing is impossible for you, that there is nothing too hard for you. God, we've just committed to you a whole bunch of scenarios, a whole bunch of different situations that we are facing that we need your help with. Lord, I pray for each person here who's, who's done that. Lord, I pray that you would intervene. Father, I thank you that you've given us this example, this story in the Bible, that we might know that you can do anything. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to believe that you would do so. Amen. A natural question that you might have is how much faith do I need to believe that God will move? How much faith do I need to have? Do I have that kind of faith? Well, let me tell you, it only takes a mustard seed of faith to move mountains. It's intriguing that Jesus' main concern in this passage does not really appear to be the demon-possessed boy. Uh, Mark, in his gospel account, has gone to great length to share the details of what this demon has done to his son, and, and we've gone through that. But in fact, if you read Matthew's account, as Cass has done for us, the words of Jesus really only address this one issue, and it's the issue of these people' lack of faith. Uh, there's the words on the slide, Matthew 17:17 17, 17 and, and Matthew 17:20. They're the words that Jesus speaks in these two accounts. Jesus' healing of the boy almost appears to be incidental to him addressing their lack of faith. Now, this isn't to mean that Jesus doesn't care about this man's plight or about this boy's torment. But what it does highlight is that Jesus' greater concern is for their lack of faith. In one sense, you could say that Jesus' problem is not the fact that demons and evil spirits exist, but rather the inability of his disciples and his people to deal with them by faith. Jesus appears more disturbed by their lack of faith than what's actually happening to, to the demon-possessed boy right in front of him. Uh, just earlier in Mark 9, verse 19, Jesus says this, You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. In the Matthew version, it says, You unbelieving and perverse generation. You see, Jesus is frustrated and exasperated by their lack of faith. He's fed up with all of them, the crowds, the teachers of the laws, even his disciples, and even this father's lack of faith. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to address his lack of faith and to restore his broken spirit. I love how the father responds after Jesus admonishes him, reading Mark 9, verses 23 and 24. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I just love this father's knee-jerk reaction. He's so desperate for the sake of his son. This is a time he recognizes that is not a time for being conservative or acting reservedly. His boy is being terrorized by this demon before their very, very eyes, and so he just lets it all out. He acknowledges his lack of faith, and he completely surrenders the situation to Jesus. Isn't it interesting how this man says, I do believe, but in the same breath, help me overcome my unbelief? And it's interesting how this perfectly describes us so much of the time. 
How often do we think, God, I know that you are all-powerful. I know that you can do anything. I 100% believe that you can. But God, I only 50% believe that you will. If I'm honest with myself, I don't really know if you're going to work in this situation for me. We look perhaps at our past experiences, our prayers that seem to have gone unheard or unanswered, and when we pray, we don't necessarily believe that our prayers will come to pass. And so naturally we think, how much faith do I really have? How much faith do we need for God to answer our prayers? Well, let me ask you this. How much faith did this man exercise in order to see his son healed? And quite frankly, he didn't have much, did he? I mean, he questioned Jesus' ability to help his situation. He said, if you can help Jesus. And even after he was admonished, he still had his doubts. Help me overcome my unbelief. And yet he still exercised just enough faith to trust Jesus with his son. It was in fact Jesus' rebuke, his admonishment, that produced in this man a mustard seed size of faith. Uh, Later on, when the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't drive this demon out, Jesus says this in Matthew 17, 19, and 20. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus said what about faith? He said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can even tell the mountains to move. I don't know if you all know what a Google Home is, but I do. I have many of those devices in my house. It's the one that you can just talk to. It's like Siri or the Amazon Echo. And, and here it's a bit like Google Home. It's in, instead of saying, hey, Google, it's hey, God. This verse is saying, if I have a mustard seed of faith, just like Google, I can say, hey God, move this mountain from here to there and it will move. Five times on in five different occasions, Jesus talks about the mustard seed. Here's one of them in Matthew 13. He tells this parable. It's only two verses. It says this. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. The mustard seed is about the size of a full stop on this page in front of me. It is tiny. I think there's a picture of one there. This tiny full stop, when planted in good soil, will grow to become like this tree on the next slide. Hopefully... This kingdom of heaven uh, that Jesus is referring to is a reference to the influence or rule of of God in a person's life. And the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed because it starts really small in someone's life. When you first come to believe, when you first come to know Jesus, your faith is tiny and God's reign in your life is also tiny. But as you exercise and as you cultivate and nurture that faith, it becomes big and strong and it permeates every aspect of your life. Not only will it flourish, 
but this tree will also provide shelter and benefit for the birds that rest in its branches. That's why the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. When Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, that you can tell the mountains to move, he's not saying really that our faith has to be a specific size to move mountains. The, the reality is our faith doesn't actually move anything. God is the one who moves mountains. He's the one who can uproot mulberry bushes and throw them into the sea. What really matters is not so much the size of your faith, but the object of our faith. Uh, I've used this illustration before, but I really like it. Uh, it's like you've gone out hiking and you come across this old rickety bridge that goes across a river. Uh, you look at it and it looks really dodgy and you're in two minds as to whether you should cross it. But no matter how dodgy this bridge looks, as long as it is strong enough to support your weight, then it's going to carry you to the other side. Whether you cross that bridge, scared to death that you're going to plummet into the river, or whether you confidently waltz across it, it will not affect the outcome of your safety. As long as you have enough faith to take those steps across that bridge, you're going to make it to the other side. Your success does not depend on the size of your faith, but rather the strength of the object that you put your faith in. As long as a bridge can support your weight, it's irrelevant how much I trust it, as long as I trust it enough to cross it. In the same way, when we put our faith in God, no matter how small our faith is, because it's God's strength that we're relying on, even the mountains will move for us. Our faith, of course, does not stay as a mustard seed size. As we exercise our faith, as every step that we take on this bridge holds and as we realize that this bridge is sturdy enough, we will grow in confidence and our faith will grow. Every time we trust God to see us through a situation or a circumstance, we'll grow in our faith. It will be like the mustard tree. When we remember to rely on God's strength, then God will always get credited with the glory. We won't be tempted to think that we did it for ourselves. So back to the question, how much faith does it take to move that impossible situation in your life, the one that you've just committed to God? It takes just a full stop's worth. The father in our story was plagued with doubts. He faced a mountainous obstacle in his life, and yet Jesus came through for him. Why couldn't the disciples drive out this demon? It wasn't so much because they didn't have enough faith. Rather, they'd fallen into the trap of thinking that they could do the work of God without relying on the help of God. They had started doing things in their own strength, relying on their own experiences and wisdom instead of on God's power. They perhaps started on the right track, but over time they'd gotten accustomed to what they were doing and did things on their own. Their reliance on God had eroded and they needed to be sharply reminded of the consequences of doing things in their own strength. That's why Jesus, out of frustration, included them in his rebuke regarding this unbelieving and perverse generation. That's why they didn't ha even have the faith of a mustard seed, because it was placed in their own ability instead of on God's authority granted to them. I remember one of the most stressful weeks of my life, 
uh, was about eight years ago now when we accepted the offer to buy uh, the house that Chris and I currently live in. And now for those of you who've never been through the process, uh, you basically have roughly one week from the time that you accept, uh, from, that, from the time that your offer is accepted uh, in order to sort out everything for this house. So you need to sort out uh, things like the contract needs to be reviewed. Uh, you need to ensure that the house itself hasn't got any dodgy faults in it, you know, isn't filled with termites, that kind of thing. Uh, it's quite an expensive week because you need to pay all these people to do all these things. Um, you need to you know, go get a building inspection. You need to look at past strata reports. Um, and for us, we were unfortunate enough to find that there had been some water damage uh, inside the house. Uh, and the extent of that water damage was unknown. And so it was a very stressful week because I remember each day at work, before work, I would be calling up you know, various people, the building inspectors or you know, the, the lawyers or whatever, trying to get all these things done uh, before the settlement date that weekend. Uh, and at the same time, we were renegotiating uh, the price of the house, and it was all very uh, pretty stressful. Uh, at the end of the day, there was a lot of things that were beyond my control. I mean, I couldn't fix the water damage. I didn't know how to review contracts. Uh, there was a lot of things that I had to rely on other people for, uh, the lawyer, the building inspector, even the guy who produces the strata reports, uh, and negotiating with a real estate agent. I had to trust all of them that I wasn't uh, about to buy this, this house that was flawed. Uh, and I really needed their help to ensure that I wasn't making the biggest financial mistake of my life. So to some degree, I trusted them implicitly because they knew what they were doing and ultimately I didn't. And so what's the point of this story? Well, if you trust God, you're going to rely on his help. If you believe who he is, and if you believe the promises that he makes in his word are true, then you're going to rely on him, and you're going to turn to him for help in any situation. Basically, if you have faith to believe that God is who he is, then you'll turn to him in prayer. And I think the opposite is also true. If you don't really believe in God, if you don't really think that he's going to work out for you, or if you don't really believe that his ways are best and are better for you, then you won't pray to him. You're not going to turn to him in prayer either. You'll be just like the disciples in this particular story. You'll do, you'll do things your own way. You'll rely on your own wisdom and strength. And there will be demons that come that you simply can't overcome on your own. You see, genuine faith will drive us to our knees in prayer. Genuine faith will cause us to turn to him in desperation, recognizing that he is the boss of all bosses. He's the boss over the storms, over the sick, over all spiritual authority, over the salvation of our loved ones. And no demon is too difficult for him to drive out. No sickness too great for him to heal. No person beyond the reach of his arm of salvation. There's nothing that he cannot provide for us. And if we truly believe this, then we'll learn what it is to pray without ceasing. We're not going to pray half-heartedly or haphazardly. We won't accept no for an answer. Paul encourages us in Ephesians 6, 18 to 20. It says this, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fiercely make known the mystery of the gospel 
for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. You see, Paul encouraged us to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers for big things, for small things, things for ourselves, especially things for the Lord's people. Prayers of repentance, thanksgiving and intercession. Prayers for boldness in advancing the gospel. So let me ask you, do you really believe that God can do anything? Do you believe that God can move mountains for you? Do you believe that he hears our every prayer and that he is actually for us and not against us? That we are more than conquerors through him who loves us? If you do, then does your prayer life reflect that? If you look at Matthew 17, verse 21, for those of you who have Bibles and are flicking there right now, you'll be surprised to find out that Matthew 17, verse 21 does not exist. Um, I got cast to read up to verse 20. Verse 21 is missing. Uh, just as an aside, there are roughly 26,000 copies of the New Testament, different manuscripts. About 10,000 of those are in Greek, about 6,000 of those, sorry, 6,000 of those are in Greek, 10,000 are in, I think, Latin, and there's another 5,000 or so in different languages. Some of those do not include this verse, verse 21 of Matthew 17. Uh, But for those of you who have an electronic Bible, you see there's probably a footnote that refers you to Mark 9.29. And Mark 9.29 says this, he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. You see, Jesus is saying that there are some things in our lives that only prayer can resolve. Prayer alone is the solution to this demon because it requires God's intervention and he alone could rebuke this evil spirit. If these disciples had just a mustard seed of faith in God instead of in themselves, they would have gotten to their knees and cast this demon out by prayer. The truth is, there are simply some things in this world that will never happen unless we earnestly pray for them. Is there a situation that you've been facing for a long time now that you just can't get rid of? Maybe it's an issue with your health, maybe an addiction, maybe you struggle with your anger. Have you earnestly and persistently sought God for an answer in prayer? Our prayers activate the hand of God in our lives. God will use our prayers to intervene They really do make a difference. James 4.2 says this, You do not have because you do not ask God. And there are some things that we will never have because we never ask God for them. There are situations and circumstances in our lives that will never change unless we press in and pray about them. I think it's a little unfortunate that Jesus doesn't, or the the authors of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and, and actually in Luke as well, but they don't tell us what happens next. We don't find out how the father responds or, or what happens to the child. There's no kind of follow-up story. But I think it's fairly safe to assume that this father's encounter with Jesus left him with more than just a mustard seed of faith. I don't think that this father would ever doubt again the awesome power of God. Truly, Jesus helped him to overcome his unbelief. And I think it's hard for us to capture the delight, the relief, and the sheer exuberance that this father must have experienced to have his son back. 
But God also knows that joy. God knows the joy that you parents have experienced in seeing your children grow. But God also knows the heartache. He knows the suffering that a parent goes through as well. God gave us his son, Jesus, on the cross. And because God loved us so much, he did not intervene and spare Jesus from that torturous death. It was his sovereign plan from before time began that Jesus would die for our sins so that we could have relationship with him, so that we could have a mustard seed size faith and hope in him and secure our eternities in heaven. That's what God has done for us through Jesus. May we leave here today with renewed faith, a renewed understanding that God truly can do anything, that nothing is too hard for him. May we not be like the disciples in this instance. May we not trust in ourselves and our own human wisdom, but rather trust wholly in him, the one who created the heavens and the earth, whose plans no one can thwart. And may we commit our lives into his hands, praying without ceasing, with all kinds of requests for all of God's people, always. And may we know God, and may we experience the joy that it is to know him and have him by our side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us your word, your word in which we can read about your son Jesus. Father, we thank you that you can do anything, that there is nothing too hard for you, that there is no situation before us that is truly hopeless because we have you. Father, we thank you that we don't even need to have the most confident or solid of faith, that if we just believe and trust in you, then even that is enough. Father, I pray that this would give us more confidence and more faith to trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take those small steps of faith this week. That God, as we trust in you for whatever little thing it might be or whatever big thing it may be, that as we see you move, as we see you work, and as we trust in you, our faith will grow and we'll fully understand you even more. Lord, I pray for those of us who are facing these giant hurdles in our life, these mountains that we need you to move. Lord, I pray that you would move on their behalf. Lord, I thank you that you hear their prayers, our cries, even now. And God, we trust and believe that you are working, that you are for us, that God, even if we cannot see it with our eyes, you are performing miracles and going before us. Lord, I pray that you would renew our faith, renew our trust, and hold us steadfastly in your love. Father, I pray that we would be driven to prayer. I pray that as we meditate on your truths, as we trust in your promises, that God it would cause us to seek you and to seek you wholeheartedly. Lord, help us to overcome our unbelief. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.